Hi, I'm Erin, and you're listening to The Erin Roy Show. Clouds up ahead, just like memories, float into them with the same ease. Clouds up ahead, just like memories, float into them with the We are in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we have set out with the Aaron Roy Show to have thoughtful conversations with badass women. And I'm sitting here with Michaela Ellingson, who is a dance theater artist. And it's special for me to be introducing her as a badass woman, because when I met her, she was really a child and a dance student of mine here in Jackson Hole. So I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Testing, testing. And I feel incredibly actually humbled to be sitting here with you 10 years later. It's 12 years later. um, Because I've watched you grow into such a grounded young woman. And it's funny that our relationship started out as student-teacher Mm-hmm. And now this many years later, we're both adults mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're able to relate to each other on a much different level. So thank you for being here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's just jump right in. What inspires you? Um, okay. So <laughs> what inspires me is people. Um, people, I just feel like the whole reason that we're on this earth is for human connection. And I think that at the end of the day, that relationship with every individual that we encounter, be it small in this small little like conversation with a cashier at a grocery store versus a lover you're with for many, many years. Like I think that the whole point of us being here is just to connect and relate to each other. And so for me, any artistic work I do or just in my day-to-day life like what I find that I have to keep returning back to is being inspired by the people around me but also um, by this idea of a human collective and I think what is challenging is that sometimes I find we get um, we get so isolated in our own little world in our own little bubble Mm -hmm. and I definitely think that it's easier to be like, yes, human connection, my mom, my dad, my boyfriend, my, you know, brother, those people that are really close. But I also try to keep reminding myself, like I said, that it's also just those tiny little moments and these conversations you have, maybe a one-off, you know, meet and greet with some person that by chance you suddenly realize, you know, like, wait, we're, we also live on the same plane or we're from the same tribe, or maybe we're not, but like what you can learn from every person that you come in contact with. And yeah, I'm as I make art as a dancer and a performer, I my work, I'm just trying to find my voice as an artist and I'm slowly realizing more and more that it, what I'm interested in is people and how can I make work that's like a very honest, genuine human story or 
um, expression of an individual or a group of individuals where an audience can watch it and walk out and feel like, wow, I, I know that performer. Mm-hmm. I know that I feel that we can relate on that note no matter what is different, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that brings a whole conversation of <laughs> everything that's been going on in America and worldwide, actually. Uh-huh. Today is this idea of division and like kind of addressing it and acknowledging the differences. But also, yeah, we all share the same ebb and flow, I think, in a certain, on a certain scale. Yeah. Then who are your heroes? <laughs> My heroes. I... Well, it's funny because in eighth grade, we did like a hero project and my hero was Mother Teresa. Hmm. And I grew up really Catholic and she was like my patron saint for like confirmation or something around that same time. And uh, in this paper, I basically just like read a lot, or I, in the research for the paper, I read a lot about her, all that kind of stuff. And then in the paper wrote why she was my hero and... I think it came down to just, like, her selflessness yeah, and this idea that I didn't understand how someone could be so, um, yeah, just so, like, her life, from what I researched and read, I don't know, I never met her, but <laughs> what I understood <laughs> about her or the way she seemed to be was that every choice she made was for someone else, for the health of someone else, for the um, betterment of the people and the community around her. And I I was, as like a really confused, scrawny 13-year-old, really like, wow. Because at that point, you're so self-centered in your own little world, and you're like, what is happening to my body and my social life? And like, you're so confused. And I just found from that moment on, that she she was something I wanted to strive to be. Now, I mean, all these years later, like, do I think about Mother Teresa on a daily basis? No. Have I done more research about her? No, not really. Um, I sometimes, like, have these spirals where I feel like I'm not doing enough to give back in the world because mm-hmm. I do feel very privileged in my upbringing and where I live and the opportunities available to me. And so— I've done some, like, service projects, you know, gone to different places. But then I also get this weird, like, I don't want to also project, like, oh, white girl goes to Africa for two weeks, helps build a school. Well, no, that's, like, after I did projects like that, I there's, like, something more, and there's something, I, I can't figure out where my map is in order to, like, quote, unquote, help people. Um, because that didn't actually feel selfless. That trip felt very selfish. And I came back feeling a lot more, um, I mean, whole, but also my eyes were just open to the world. I never left the country. And then I went to Africa and came back and was like, wow, I know nothing, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like to go back to the original question is who's your hero? And I say Mother Teresa, I mean— I mean, the other day, my boyfriend joked. He was like, don't go all Mother Teresa on me because I, I feel guilty a lot of the time for the life that I lead because 
of the privilege that I've been born into. And I don't, I haven't figured out how I can give back in a way that feels genuinely selfless, selfless. It's interesting that you say that because I think when I look at you and I watch you interact with others and I have mentioned to several people that I'm doing this podcast and that you're one of the first people Mm -hmm. that I'm interviewing. And one woman got chills on her arms, Brandy Orchard. Oh, I love her. And, you know, another, you inspire people on an incredible level. And I think sometimes, I guess I, I wonder if you understand or if you feel that you have that power, that strength, that grace, mm. that in itself is a gift to people. Mm. Do you, does, do you, are you aware of that? I think that what I've realized and acknowledged probably in the past just couple of years, really feeling like I've come into myself more so and really committed to this idea of constantly growing, I've realized that I have a power because like there's some sort of light and like it's so cheesy, but it's always the word that it comes back to. Like I have some sort of light and I hope in every interaction that I do have some sort of, I can pass on that brightness, that light. Like it's just naturally something that has always been in my personality, but I've really like committed to expressing in the past couple of years. And especially when I lived farther away in big cities as well, I found that I at first thought it was just like my small town nature, like smile at strangers. And like, that's not the best idea always. But also, I mean, I said it earlier, but every checkout cashier I go to in any supermarket, grocery store, gas station, I try to make small talk, even if it's brief, but like, hi, how's your day? How long have you been working for today? When do you get off? And I mean, I found that a lot of my friends in these big cities are like, why are you, you're trying to buy popcorn and like, why are you carrying on this conversation? And it's funny because a lot of people in those cities, those cashiers respond with a like, why is this girl talking to me at first? But then there's always this like flip and you can just see them like take a deep breath and like trust me for a second. Mm. And like I've actually had some people tell me some really personal things kind of in like brief moments. And that has always been an indication that I'm like, okay, I do have something here that goes back to the original question, what inspires me? people and these little interactions we have. And I do have um, a gift to make these tiny connections be positive. Or even like I said, you know, you sit next to someone on a train and if you're bold enough to maybe say something, you know, I had a conversation with a guy sitting up at like a, a bar and I was with a group of people and I just turned to him and I was like, so, you know, and like we talked for an hour and, you know, I feel like I grew and learned from that conversation with him. So to not let the fear of interacting hold me back from doing that because, I don't know. And I also do feel in a bigger scheme, I'm interested in like counseling and therapy and the power of conversation and dialogue Mm -hmm. um, as like a potential future passion or 
job or something. I don't know. It's interesting that you use the word bold and fear, the words bold and fear, because one of my hopes is that with this podcast, uh, we as women can inspire others to live more boldly mm-hmm. and and to conquer our fears, however small or large they might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I love that those words came up. What what are some of your fears? Um, fears. I am afraid of empty houses, like dark, empty houses, <laughs> which I find to be, um, I mean, it's interesting because I think that's just a, a little phrase to say, like, I'm empty of being alone. I think that, like, I've never wanted to live alone. Like, the idea of going into a dark, empty house and, like, that's where you have to exist it scares me, and I think it is rooted in that I grew up in a very, like, warm home. And when you walk in the door at the end of the day, growing up, there was always my mother or my father or my brothers around. And there was noise and there was warmth. And so even through college and things, I always had roommates. And if I was the first one home and walked into this empty flat or this empty apartment, I always was kind of, like, not disturbed by it. But, you know, you're like, oh, when is the next person getting home? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that this idea of how connected I am to people, it's just really carried forward in a way that I think can sometimes actually be detrimental and that I am afraid to be alone. And I'll even find myself, like, in the car driving, and I've been around people all day, and I've been talking to people, and either I'll listen to the news, and that feels like some sort of conversation, just because, you know, there's a dialogue being had— or if I don't listen in the news, I'll end up like calling a friend on speakerphone and talking for mm-hmm. that 10-minute drive. And there's moments that I feel like I am afraid of just sitting with myself. And I'm afraid of just being on my own. And like the idea of never engaging with people or having like a partner to build something with, you know. And I mean, I don't know if I want to get married and have kids like that's down the road for me, but I also, the idea of never having that kind of nucleus, that family, um, is scary for me. I don't know, because that's just how I was raised and what I firmly believe is life is meant to be shared. And I want to do a little more traveling alone, and I've done a bit, but I also love traveling with other people because I think that there's such a a joy in being able to look at something new or experience something and turn to whoever it is you're with, a good friend Mm -hmm. or someone you're married to or a small child, whoever, and just be like, do you see this, you know, and experience that together. Out of curiosity, mentioning sitting by yourself, do you meditate? So, yes, I (laughs) went through a whole phase where I was really trying to focus on meditation, mindfulness, And it was actually after I went through a breakup and I was like, okay, Michaela, like stand on your own two feet, like be an adult, grow into your own skin. Um, And it was a summer where I traveled alone a bit and I like um, had this app that was like helping me into meditation, you know, and I would listen. And I also feel like I have a lot of energy. And that's another thing that I've grown up just always having a lot of energy, which is why I was, um, dance was such a good fit for me too. 
as a way to just like get that out. But um, so I find it really hard to sit and meditate. And that summer, I read a book about meditation and mindfulness. I did these like, you know, podcasts or app guided meditation things. And I found it to be really helpful. I found it to be really hard. I felt that's what I needed. I think that I want to cycle back to more of a um, creating more of a routine that allows space for that, which actually now that I say that, that's a contradiction because I believe you can make space for anything. You just have to have the self-discipline to do it. Mm. So like my schedule right now does have space for meditation. I just haven't implemented the self-discipline to incorporate it into my life. So it sounds like something that you will be doing. Yes. No, I absolutely feel like I will cycle back to it. Um, But I currently don't, but I have explored it before. Yeah. I like it. Uh, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Well, actually, I I did want to ask you, it's such an interesting thing, solitude, Mm. loneliness. And I feel like as artists, there are times when solitude is necessary or we have a dream that sort of falls short of our own expectations and and we can for me it can be a very lonely feeling mm. um, and I wondered what are for you what what is the loneliest moment that you can remember right now the loneliest moment my loneliest moment that I can remember right now I think I did create a solo over a four-month period of time. And the process of making that solo, although I did have people helping and advising me and coming to watch, I think I rehearsed a, let's put a number on it, like 50 hours or something. And a total of walking into a studio, which is almost like an empty house, but it's, Mm. you know, a little bit safer because there's studios next door, but... I'd walk into this space and I'd be like, okay, you have two hours. What are you doing? What are you making? And that was a really amazing experience for me to have to have the self-discipline and the imagination to sit with myself for two hours and over these the four months to build something that was an expression of myself. And as I performed it and put together the sound score and all of it, at the end of the day, the feedback I got was like, that was so purely you. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because as I was making it, it, I felt like it was fairly like autobiographical, like this is my life and this is my dance, <laughs> whatever. But at the same time, you have to be alone to find yourself and you have to be alone to reevaluate who you are as you change and grow. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in just the going that the stopping and the being still and in a lot of those rehearsals, I would just lay on the floor or write or just dance until I couldn't breathe. And then you have to, you know, face yourself, face your exhaustion, face your boredom, face your habits, which my habits are to just go, 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 go and use my energy to, engage with others but what happens when you sit and what happens when you have no one else to play off of like what do you make who are you what's makes you any different than 
anyone else. Mm. So I think the loneliest moment was a, those series of rehearsals where I had to constantly face myself and face myself again. And I'm interested in making another solo because I think that it's important two years later to keep reevaluating and doing that because I'm different than I was when I made it, you know? And can I make another self-portrait now? And the whole thing, someone asked me, they're like, okay, well, you're making a solo. It's a self-portrait. Great. Who cares? Like, why does anyone else care? And I said, I was like, I don't know if anyone cares, but I hope that anyone who watches it sees themselves inside of it. Like, Mm -hmm. I hope you can look at it and be like, okay, this girl might be very different than me, but I have those tendencies. Or I see my daughter in that. And yeah, just the fact that, no, I get overwhelmed by the news and I want to be Mother Teresa, but I don't know how. And I listen to the radio and get really stressed and don't ever stop talking. Like, all of those things became part of it. And it was lonely to get there because I didn't have anyone else to, like, kick my butt and cheer me on. But it, at the end of the day, was super beneficial. And it's interesting. It's quite beautiful the way that you described it. It's somewhat circular to me Mm. and that you go into a studio, you are alone, you face yourself. It takes some getting to, to, to actually, at least for me, to welcome myself to the process. Yep. There is sort of an initiation process and discipline, yes, is required. But through that work, I love that even uh, through the outcome of the choreography that you created, you were able to then share mm. something very um, personal to you that does have an impact on people. And I, it's mothers, daughters, young dancers. Yeah. Was that the solo that I saw at Purchase by chance? No, unfortunately, no. That solo um, at Purchase had been choreographed by someone outside. And then this was my master's solo at London Contemporary Dance oh, School. Okay. So I performed it in London, and then I also came back to Jackson, and I performed it the winter after I graduated. So, yeah, and it was amazing. I mean, to connect back to community, Just this is just like a side note, shout out. But um, I came back to Jackson, and I was like, okay, I have this MA solo. Babs, can I do it in Studio One on, like, January 9th, whatever. And I had, like, 90 or 100 people come and pack into this little space, and it was just me. And it also— was me after all this dance education, and I felt these high expectations. And the solo was weird. Like, it's literally m- an expression of my daily existence. And um, just to be able to have a community that was so supportive and receptive and willing to just come and see. And, I mean, yeah, it's like teachers I had and friends' parents from childhood and my next-door neighbors and, you know, my dance teachers and also the students that are at Dancers Workshop currently. And it was this really amazing thing connecting back to how lonely I had been in the process of making it. But in the performing of it, I felt more support than I ever have in my entire life, which was really, really cool, really special. It's uh, So for those listening, we are in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is where the two of us met. Uh, I live in New York, but I'm lucky enough to spend some of my summers here. You've grown up here. You moved to New York for school and then to London for your MA, and then you've come back. Mm -hmm. And there is such a strong sense of community here, and it's an incredibly beautiful thing. I discovered community through living here. Mm -hmm. You grew up in it. Do you think you'll be here for the rest of your life? 
Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I hope not, and I hope so. I think, I don't know, I'm really into this idea of circles these days, and I think that I'm really inspired by the hero's journey, which is like a Joseph Campbell philosophy about there's a call for adventure, a call to leave. Um, you get sent on a quest of some sort, and you go, and you struggle, and you experience it, and you you know, battle yourself and battle the demons and whatever it is, and then you return home and you share. And then you're home, and then you get another call. And I don't know when I will be called to leave next. I feel really happy and grateful to be back in this beautiful community um, right now, and it feels like where I need to be. But I also, I don't see myself as someone who can just stay in one place forever. Um, I don't know. Those things can change, but I also, I know there's going to be another call. And I don't know if that means a place or a passion or a person or whatever it is. But um, yeah, I I don't think I'll be here forever. And if I, I think I will always return. And I, I know throughout my life I will go and I will leave and I will come back. And if it's for months at a time, years at a time, um, this place will always be where I like, reground myself and come back and kind of reevaluate but um I there's a lot of world to see I think <laughs> and I like being outside my comfort zone and here sometimes I do get like comfy because it is home and it challenges me in other ways but yeah yeah you, you um you talk about struggles and and the hero's journey which I absolutely believe in as well and yes there are obstacles that we sort of battle mm -hmm. our way through and about a year and a half ago, you had a near-death experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, and then how it shaped how, uh, what, what, how you came through that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so a year ago, I year, year and a half, I got bucked off a horse, horseback riding up in the Grovance, which is a mountain range or area, you know, north of Jackson, with like a dear, dear friend and her family, and I had begged to go with them. And they were like, okay, sure. You know, but I mean, horses, it's a risk. I don't have a lot of experiences on horses. I'd actually fallen off a horse prior to this. I've ridden horse like five times. So I don't have a great track record, but <laughs> I felt that it would be fun. So went horseback riding. I got bucked off. And as I got bucked off, I got kicked on the way down into my um, abdominal area, which is when the damage happened, which I lacerated my pancreas and my liver and my kidney. And I was flighted to Salt Lake in a helicopter. There's the reality that I never once felt my life was completely in danger. Like, I didn't ever be like, I'm going to die. Like, the moment after I got hit was the most pain I've ever been in my life. But in the process of getting to the hospital and being at the hospital in Jackson and talking to the doctors, they just— they weren't sure what was really going on, so they wanted me closer to specialists, hence the helicopter ride. But when you say you've got a helicopter ride or were airlifted, airflighted to Salt Lake, there is this sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. And what I learned through the accident and what I learned through the process of being in the hospital for 10 days and losing all this weight and being so sick and not able to take care of myself was the first thing is, like, life is fragile. And— we know that. We learned that. I mean, I feel like in this town, there's a lot of death, actually, in terms of car accidents or just the extreme nature. And 
um, I feel like we're, we're faced with that and reminded of that every day. But for me, like, I've never lost someone incredibly close to me. I mean, grandparents and an uncle when I was young. But when it is your own life that suddenly you realize how, how fragile it is and at any moment anything can change. And it really changed the trajectory of where I was headed professionally. I was planning to go back to London, and this horse accident really, it really made me question what was important to me and how important family was and being near nature. Um, I realized that I was returning to the city maybe for the wrong reasons. So... In those moments of pain and struggle, and um, again, I was—I did feel very alone in that process as well. I had so much support from my family and friends, but at the same time, you're in your body completely just like lost and trapped and helpless. And through that experience of injury and trauma, you come out a stronger person because you had to face um, face pain and also face the fact that for me, my identity is very rooted in my physicality and my body and my ability to move. So when that was taken away for a period of time, um, I had to really evaluate, like, am I more than a dancer? Am I more than a mover? If I lost the ability to be physical, then what is left? Like, am I just a shell? What is my, do, what strengths do I have that are not related to my physical being? So for me, it was a huge growing curve that I think I actually really needed mm. to acknowledge the fact that I am more than a physical moving being and that at any moment things can change. So constantly reevaluate your priorities and who you surround yourself with and what you want to be doing because yeah, at any moment it it can be done. So, it's interesting to me that even with that experience and the fact that physical expression is so important to you. Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that that could have been a turning point for you that you recovered and I know that you're still recovering, but that mm -hmm. you you recovered from that process and then decided that hey, dance is meaningless mm -hmm. in the grander scheme of things. But you didn't. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you're dancing, at least from what I've seen, with as as much passion and um, just uh, focus mm -hmm. as you ever were. So it that didn't take that away from you. It it made it stronger or Yeah, it's interesting because it made me appreciate dance more. It made me appreciate my ability to move. It also, like, what has changed is I'm more interested in balance. And that was something where returning back to London and, like, pursuing this, like, dancer, dancer, dancer thing with all of the visa things that go with it, um, I realized I wanted more of a balance. And I felt that I could find that more here right now in terms of the ability to dance and be involved in the arts, the ability to be outside and connect to nature, and to be near family and friends and people that I feel are very important to me. So the thing about the accident is by no means did it take away 
my passion for dance, it did wake me up to this idea of balance and the pursuit of trying to find balance with dance in my life. But what I find is that when I am dancing, I am, I don't want to say euphoric, but I'm so grateful that I can be. And I did just perform a year later. And I mean, my parents were both crying because they were like, look at how far she's come and how a year ago she was so incapable of doing this. And now she is above and beyond what she was even before her accident. So this idea of rebuilding stronger Mm -hmm. physically and artistically um, is important. But what was interesting to me is I didn't have to give up everything else I was interested in order to rebuild back stronger. Actually, the idea of balance and hiking and biking and spending time with my loved ones instead of just being in the studio dancing I actually think makes me a stronger dancer and a stronger artist. And yeah, I I will always be a dancer. I will always love dance. But I also, through my accident and through the rebuild, have really acknowledged the fact that it is not the only thing I need. I need a lot of other things, but it is something that I'm so grateful for and that I love. Like I, there's something so beautiful about the art of moving um, so physically while also expressing so artistically. And I just haven't been able to find that in any other thing, that you can be engaged so fully in both realms yeah. at the same time. That's, that's great. Uh, I'm just going to fire some questions at you. Okay. Uh, what's your first memory of me? My first memory of you uh, is in Studio 2 at the Center for the Arts and Dancers Workshop. And you were my ballet teacher. And I can't put like a year on this exactly, but I remember your posture. And I remember being like, okay, this woman is here and she knows what she's talking about. And I remember thinking there was a a kindness and a softness that was so matched by your um, strength and your, I I don't want to say professionalism, but there was this student-teacher relationship where there was a kindness, but you also wanted to get down to business and you wanted to make us better. And I respond actually really well to people who have that kind of strong leadership. I like got really frustrated in school when like classes would be kind of chaotic Mm -hmm. and I remember being in your ballet class and you saying something like very I don't want to say harsh but like I'm doing a gesture where I'm hitting one hand onto the other (laughs) because it was just like clear and cut and like keeping the chaos at bay and I was like I don't know I just remember thinking okay like I wasn't scared of you but I also I was like okay she knows what she's doing she's firm but there's a tenderness Mm. Interesting. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. What would you, you're you're 25 now, is that right? What would you tell your 13-year-old self or your 12-year-old self? Oh, my gosh. I would tell myself, you just have to, I understand that this is like the way adolescents' brains work, but I was so insecure. And I, as a 13-year-old girl and as a woman, I think that we, carry all of these insecurities about ourselves 
so heavily from a young age. And I remember like 13 to 17, like I was never pretty enough. I was never smart enough. I was never a good enough dancer. And it was good because it made me work hard. But this idea of being enough and as a 13-year-old, like in my mind, that was like the worst year of my life because I was also so thin and so embarrassed by that. And it's interesting because a lot of people look at body image and they're like, well, you were so small. Why were you insecure? You know, you're skinny. And like skinny was like the worst thing people could tell me because I was wearing like, you know, Gap Kids jeans and like they were baggy and I felt so insecure about that. And I remember the year of seventh grade, I wore a big down jacket every day, the entire day, because I felt like it would make me look bigger. In reality, it made me look like so much smaller because my little tiny head and then my like puffy down coat, like the reality of it, I'm like, oh. But I just, I would tell myself like, you have to, what I want to instill in 13 year olds or teenagers is like, no, don't ever let your ego get too big to, um, so that you cannot keep working or it, it kind of suffocates your desire to work. But you have to, like, believe in yourself and believe in the process of growing into yourself because, yeah, it's confusing and it sucks and you don't know what you're doing or how you feel, but you have to know and trust that, like, as a human, you'll you'll be okay because just— years of self-deprecating, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, I actually think held me back in a lot of ways from reaching a potential that I could have reached if I would have just believed it was possible. Yeah, and I'm over here nodding my head because it rings true. Yes. It really does, For I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, would you tell us a secret? Ooh, a secret. Um, yeah, so I was at a big music festival in the UK, and it was, like, a very, like, extravagant, like, three-day festival where I was performing, and I was with, like, 30 people in this company that I had joined um, for this project, but I didn't really know any of them that well, but it was, like, in the woods, and it was just so lovely, and I was so excited. In the process of this, there's a lot of, like, drinking and drugs and all of that. I didn't touch any drugs because I was scared, and I didn't know people enough to feel like that could be a place to experiment. So I was just drinking, which I have a really small bladder. And through that weekend, I think there was one time that I literally just peed my pants standing in line waiting for the bathroom. <laughs> and none of the other company members that I know knew it. And I was wearing dark pants, but I was just waiting in the bathroom and I just, it all, I let it all go. And I still to this day, am like traumatized for the idea that I was like a 23, 24-year-old human standing at this beautiful concert like Bjork was playing or something amazing. And and I just had to go so bad. And I just— You went. I just went. Right. Right there. <laughs> uh, this is probably our last question. Do, do you—the the light that you talk about being aware of, do you ever consider it a burden? Um, no, I don't consider it a burden, but I also, like, it doesn't exist all the time. And I think that when people put pressure on me or I put pressure on myself to be this light all the time is actually really de detrimental because then it does become a burden. 
But I really try to acknowledge the fact that I am, like, very imperfect. Like, I am a little shit show. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I struggle, and I mess up, and I make mistakes, and I say things I shouldn't, and I, I think that deep down there is a light, but it is covered up by a lot of baggage and insecurity, and um, my actions are definitely not flawless. And so I find that by understanding that very human, imperfect nature, that then I don't have the burden because I'm like, I'm just, I'm just trying, you know, I'm just trying to be a light. I'm just trying to bring good into the world. But no, I, I might say something hurtful or I might not reach my full potential in a certain way or connect to that person how I wanted to or give that child the confidence boost they need um, because I'm, I'm just trying and that doesn't always result in success. So I don't think it's a burden. It's a gift, but it's not always there. <laughs> if you catch me on a bad day, like I'm as grumpy as the next person. So yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for doing this with me. And I am grateful that we can be friends and that this will continue. Our relationship will continue. And I, I look forward to, to being present in the moments of your life because it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful journey to watch unfold. And I'm happy that our paths crossed. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure they'll keep weaving in and out and crossing again. So absolutely. thank you, Erin. You're welcome. Yes. Hey, thanks for listening to The Aaron Roy Show. I'll leave you with Liz DeLise and her song, Clouds Up Ahead. <laughs>